in time conversations i'm your host justin farmer inviting you to be in community with us about ideas that matter and people making a difference today our guest is alex taubes civil rights attorney thank you alex for being with us thanks for having me justin i always love to uh to catch up with people and to connect with people by asking them what's a hot take they have right just to ground people on like who is alex top what's a hot take you have right today i brought in the umbrella and i'm very upset because i know i don't believe in umbrellas and the umbrella bent on me and i'm just like this is why i don't like umbrellas well i mean it's not raining that hard (laughs) (laughs) i I had the same thought when i walked out of the office this morning but gabriel was like it's not raining that hard. Just walk. It's only a block. I, but you I, had a bit of a... I got to protect the merch. <laughs> yeah, you had a bit of a ways to go. So, yeah. Well, they say in Scandinavia, there's a saying, uh, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. Mm. So, prepare for the worst. That's the lesson for the day. That's the hot take there. That, that is true. There, There is no bad weather. I love the snow myself upset that we didn't have more snow um people will who tune in always hear me complain about this but we didn't get enough snow this year no i agree with that i love the snow um i have always uh i've always been fascinated with law but i've always been frustrated with it and so um i guess what made you decide to go into law and how do you uh, I I would guess that you, uh, as a civil rights attorney, you see yourself as an activist as well as a lawyer. So what? how do you see this different from other practices of law? And what made you decide to go into law? I guess growing up as a kid, I always really liked politics and follow politics. Like You, you can relate, Justin. <laughs> I'm a political junkie, you know. I remember when I was a kid, I staying up really late to see what the results would be in the primary between Ned Lamont and Joe Lieberman, you know, for U.S. Senate in the middle of the Iraq war debate. And when I was in high school, not so much in high school, but when I got to college, Boston University, I joined the debate team. And that was kind of like a pipeline 
from being politically interested and involved into wanting to become a lawyer. So many of the people who are on the debate team who were older than me became lawyers, went to law school. So I had a lot of people who took the path before me. And after college, I worked for a judge, uh, David Tatel, who is now a senior judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. And he's blind. And my job was to read for him all of the materials um, that he needed to have read during the day working through his normal duties as a judge. So I got a, like a front row seat to a federal court, a federal appeals court right beneath the Supreme Court, the one that um, Judge Kavanaugh was on at the time, Merrick Garland was on it at the time. Um, and it, Judge Tatel's seat was the seat that Justice Ginsburg held before she was a Supreme Court justice. And I saw some really interesting, really important issues. We worked on cases like the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was being challenged. We worked on Guantanamo Bay habeas corpus cases, people who were being held as enemy combatants in Guantanamo Bay. But while I was so captivated and interested and definitely inspired by Judge Tatel, ultimately what I saw was the system perpetrating serious injustices that went against the very ideals that they were supposed to be upholding. Whether it was with the Guantanamo Bay detainees in a pretty significant case where Judge Tatel dissented and said that the detainee should have been released, mm. but the majority of the court ruled against him. Or a case where Judge Tatel was in the majority upholding the Voting Rights Act, but the year we left, uh, his chambers the year after the Supreme Court reversed his decision and ruled part of the Supreme Court uh, ruled part of the Voting Rights Act unconstitutional and so while there was no doubt in my mind at that point that I was going to become a lawyer I was also really firmly resolved that I wanted to be someone who was trying to change the system and not just be of and for the system that currently exists and when I was fortunate enough to get it to Yale Law School back in the home community, New Haven County, where I grew up, I knew that I wanted to stay here no matter what mm. and find a way that I could be a piece of the puzzle locally to do something positive, make a change in the law and the legal sphere. No, that, that is beautiful. Uh, <coughs> Barbara Fair says, good morning, guys, sending love energy. Um, Barbara is amazing. If y'all don't know, go check out the episode we did with Barbara. Um, you you said something interesting to me that you wanted to come back home um, and do the work here. Why is doing the work locally so important to you? Well, growing up the way I did, you know, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, you know, <laughs> raised in Madison, Connecticut, and... Um, with an immense amount of privileges. I always believe that I could have a greatest impact, positive, hopefully, right here where I had all those privileges and, and where I grew up and where I know people and places and things that um, I can only know because I've had that privilege of being here and getting educated and receiving all of these different informations and knowledges and practices. And they've all accumulated and hopefully I can use them for good for other people who don't have yet that much experience with the system that I was able to successfully, you know, navigate 
and make my way through, you know, people who didn't always have the same privileges that I did. I think that, um, also they're just everything that a person might want in the world to, to try to accomplish or try to see or try to be a part of, you could find in, in your local Connecticut area, you know, all the same problems that we have all throughout the world, all throughout the country also exist in Connecticut. Um, you know, one thing about being the most unequal place in the world, pretty much, or one of the most unequal places in the United States is that it's, there's a lot of different circumstances <laughs> that, that, that occur, you know, all across the board. So if you're looking to, you know, apply yourself in whatever passion that you have, chances are there's a need for it in Connecticut, in your local area. You just have to find, you know, I was fortunate to have the privilege of being able to go into something where there's a huge amount of unmet need, you know, but there's a lot of different things where that's true. Yeah, no, that, that is a, <clears throat> that, that is a, a great perspective to have. <clears throat> um, I know computations have been a hot topic lately. And so, you know, as a civil rights attorney, as someone who represents people who have committed crimes and <clears throat> are looking to move forward with their lives. Why are computations so important? Well, I would say the issue of uh, commutations of sentence in Connecticut is extremely important. And I say that not only as an attorney who's represented people who've committed crimes, but also as an attorney for people who have been the victim of crimes um, who still suffer from the tragedy and the trauma that was inflicted by a crime years or decades later. And what a commutation of punishment is, is when a parole board or a governor um, in Connecticut, it's been vested in the parole board, reduces the prison sentence of a person who's currently incarcerated to provide for an earlier release from prison. And in Connecticut, that process has existed since 1883, but in recent years had basically been ground down to a halt, mm. including through the entire time of COVID, the parole board did not commute the sentence of a single prisoner during the entire outbreak in wow. 2020, while prisoners, dozens of prisoners died during that period in overcrowded um, nursing home wards of the prison and other places where there were people who posed no threat. So in two, July 2021, after a lot of pressure from people like uh, Ms. Fair and me and others, mostly others, the parole board came out with a new policy and a select group of people who basically had some of the most um, valid cases because they had been waiting to apply for years, um, finally got an opportunity to get a hearing in front of the parole board to plead their case for some mercy on a very long sentence. One of the cases that's been covered extensively by the New Haven Independent is the case of Daryl Valentine. Mm. He was convicted of a double murder that he had no part in. He's completely innocent of the crime. And anyone who has any question about that should read the excellent reporting of Colin Chang in the New Haven Independent who looked at the wrongful conviction of Daryl Valentine over a year before he was released from prison. 
And he was serving a 100-year prison sentence. My God. And he had not had any disciplinary violations in the prison for like 20 years. He had taught other prisoners, even though he himself suffered with a learning disability, was still struggling to get his GED. He worked in the kitchens for decades, somehow maintaining a positive attitude. The parole board showed him some level of mercy. He still has his, his murder convictions, which were still trying to get overturned mm. by state's attorney, John Doyle. But the parole board took 57 years off of his prison sentence to allow him to be out of prison. After serving 32 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Wow. And without the parole board's commutation process, Daryl Valentine would still be in prison today on a wrongful conviction that even state investigators agree he would never have been arrested today if the crime had occurred today with the evidence that they brought against him. Wow. And there's even more to do with the police misconduct, which would take up an entire show. (laughs) But the parole board, again, provided this relief to a select few small number of cases. And none of the people who (coughs) were released have been convicted of any crimes But the Republicans started holding press conferences in Hartford claiming that there was an outcry from victims. Now, the only victims who they brought forward was a family whose person who they were protesting had their application denied. So it was a person who was not released. Mm. But they had this family come forward to, to argue that they shouldn't have even allowed this person to apply because he's so bad and so therefore nobody should be allowed to even apply for commutations and these republican press conferences happened one after the other after the other until finally shockingly governor ned lamont removed carlton giles the chairperson of the parole board who developed the commutation policy from his position as a member of the parole board and put a hold a stop on the entire commutation process of the state of Connecticut, including for two of my clients who after spending more than 20 years in prison, in one case, 25 years in prison, had finally had a hearing scheduled for April 25th. Oh God. Waiting decades for this chance to plead for some mercy like Daryl Valentine, one of my clients who spent 25 years in prison, completely innocent of the crime. There's no reliable evidence tying him to the crime. No DNA, no fingerprint, no no forensic evidence at all. Just a informant who received dismissal of charges in exchange for his testimony, who initially told police that the person has w- was wearing a mask. Anyway, these two men had their hearings canceled. Other people had their applications held in abeyance. And... So it's definitely disappointing. That being said, it's a complicated issue. Mm. There's people on both sides. And in politics, people in politics tend to look for issues where there's no losers, everyone's a winner. Right? And there were cases where there was, everyone did call for people to be released. Like in Daryl Valentine's case, the mother of the vic, the only mother of a victim to speak said, I leave it to the parole board. Mm. 
And in another case, the victim's family came forward and said, we think he should be, re- we think he should be released so he can live a good life and do good for others. So not everyone agrees on every th- case, but I understand where it's coming from here. It's not simple stuff. We're not talking about nonviolent drug offenses. You know, we're not talking about fender benders here. So old wounds are being opened up and people are being re-traumatized. And I have sympathy for that. Mm. So where I come from in this is to say, the reason we have a parole board commutation process is in part because it's not because these guys all deserve to be released or even deserve a hearing. It's because every other part of our criminal justice process has flaws. Mm. The, the arrest process has flaws. We know this. The bail process has flaws. We know that. The trial process, flaws. Plea bargains, flaws. Appeals, flaws. Habeas corpus, flaws. And these flaws sometimes accumulate, take away decades of people's lives. Parole board is like a safety valve. <laughs> you know, they go through a thorough vetting. People are looked at very closely. Every part of them is interviewed. They're no threat. Something went wrong in this process. We have a good person here or a reformed person or a person who never should have been here in the first place. And now Connecticut stands as the only state in the United States with no functioning commutation or clemency process because it's been put on hold by our governor. And that's on us as a state. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, 103.5 FM. Um, Our guest today, Alex Taubes, civil rights attorney, talking about the computation process. Um, That is wild, right? That out of the 50 states, we are right now the only state without a process. Um, What... What is the process or what was the process, right? Um, I can tell you because most of the people who've gotten the relief I represented, it was a big part of my practice. (laughs) Put on hold here. So basically it starts with an application and 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 the cornerstone of the application are two questions. The first question that you have to really answer, I mean, there's a lot of informational stuff you you have to fill out, but the two core questions are one, Give us an account of the crime that was committed. Mm. So if you claim your innocence, explain how you claim your innocence. If you take responsibility and you admit that you're guilty of the crime, and most of my clients who went through this process do, they don't claim their innocence. They, they admit to the crime. Explain in detail what you did. And that's difficult. It's not an easy question. I had one client who, while he was in prison, he had a horrible fall in a prison shower where his skull was cracked and he had a traumatic brain injury. Mm. So now 25 years after his crime, he can't remember why he's in prison. Oh, God. Right? So he can only put, this is what other people have told me I did. The second question is, why should we give you a commutation? (laughs) And, and they give you some guidance on how to answer that. You could talk about your behavior in prison and your rehabilitation while you've been in prison. 
education that you've received and how much you've matured over the years from when you might have been really young to when you become a middle-aged person or an older person? Any possible physical health or, or mental health issues that maybe weren't explained in your case or that have developed over time while you've been in the prison? Anything, you know, whether your sentence was out of line with what the sentences would be giving out today. Basically, a lot of information that, you know, as Senator Martin Looney recently said in defense of commutations, the judge only sees a person on one day. Mm. And it's pretty much one of the worst days, early days of one of the worst days. There's a lot that we might learn about that person in the 20 years that come after or the 25 years that come after. And that the judge who gave out a really hard sentence, if they had known that at the time, they might not have given the same sentence. And so those two questions are the main cornerstone of it. And then we provide as well all the supporting documentation, letters of support from family members, oftentimes letters of support from members of DOC staff. Had clients who've had letters of support from deputy wardens, from wardens, from former commissioners of the DOC who say this is a person who's set up programs within the prison to help stop the next person from committing the next crime, to help save someone who's a young person from going down the same path that they went down. And they were credible, and they sacrificed themselves to do this, and they were successful. So these applications are very involved. I've had applications that are more than a thousand pages wow. of paperwork. And... The application then goes through a very rigorous pre-screening process before it ever goes in front of a hearing where they might do something for you. This person who the Republicans had a protest about didn't make it through the pre-screen process. 70% of the applications don't make it through the pre-screen process. Wow. The pre-screen process, there's no hearing. The three members of the board look at it and they say, is this even something we want to learn more about? Or is it a no without anything more, just based on the paper? And again, 70% are just screened out because of that. And then the next step after that, if you make it past the pre-screening process, and that's what my clients who had their hearings canceled basically with the governor's action, they made it past this pre-screening process. They also get, at that point, a very thorough background vetting process happens where of course, there's background checks. Of course, that goes without saying. But additionally, a parole officer goes and interviews them, interviews members of their support system, and also outreach is made to the victim's family at that point. So there's a very you know, rigorous process then that goes through for the vetting, as well as the attorney who's preparing the person for this possible hearing is also getting more information, providing more information and preparing the client for the questions that are going to come at the, at the hearing. The hearings, anybody can go on CTN and watch a commutation hearing and see one for themselves. Most of them were publicly put on live access television. There's nothing secret about them. Um, the person who is incarcerated gives an opening statement. The attorney gives an opening statement. The victim's family, is, is their point of view is given. And they're allowed to speak or they're allowed to have a representative speak for them. The state's attorney, the prosecutor's office from the district is allowed to speak, give their position, suggestions. Then the parole board basically does a one hour to two hour long 
interview of the person who's incarcerated, asking them questions ranging from, if you maintain your innocence, how can you be rehabilitated for the crime? To, if we were to release you, what, was, what is your plan for what you're going to be doing when you're out there? What are the biggest challenges that you see yourself facing when you're released? To, you know, how do you respond to what the victims had to say in their statements? And not everybody who gets to this hearing and answers these questions gets this relief of a commutation, of a reduction of their prison sentence by some amount of years or months. And many of the people who do get some relief don't get immediate relief from prison. I had a client, again, the one who had the support of the warden and the commissioner of correction. His sentence was reduced from 50 years prison to 35 years prison. He served about 25 so the parole board didn't say, congratulations, sir, you're now released from prison. They said, instead of believing you're going to die in prison, you have 10 more years to serve. And this is what the Republicans <laughs> have shut down completely. But really, they weren't, they weren't just letting people out of prison. You know, the people who have gotten out of prison have served a long time. A long time. So this is not a process that I can't go into prison and then two years into like a... You can't even year. apply until you serve 10. And no one has even received one to my knowledge who served less than 15. Maybe one had 14, not one of my clients, but he was very young when he came to prison in his teens. So... No one goes into prison thinking, I'm going to get a commutation. No one. No one. But if there is no commutation, there's going to be some people in prison where it's like, what are you going to do to me? <laughs> I'm going to be here till I die, no matter what. You're going to throw me in jail? I'm in jail until I die. The commutation, the faintest hope of a commutation, helps to keep order in the prison system, frankly. That's why wardens and commissioners and DOC staff and brass do support people getting relief sometimes because they understand that to run a prison system, you have to have some hope. There has to be some hope for people in the state. It's a real question of whether rehabilitation is a thing or isn't a thing. If it's a department of correction or not. Is there any correction going on? If there's correction and there's been correction, then why can't we look at whether there can be reintegration and a productive member of society again? Barbara Fair says that she's going to hold the uh, Appreciation Day, the 17th, for Giles. I, uh, uh, it, it was interesting learning about this issue because uh, Giles is former police officer for decades, right? It's not someone who, you know... There were a lot of decisions I disagreed with. He denied many of my clients. Many, many of my clients were denied. He was no snowflake. <laughs> you know? he, he was not liberal, starry-eyed, radical Giles by far. He was concerned with public safety. He was concerned with keeping people safe. He was concerned with what was, you know, fair. And he didn't, and he often took into account what the victim's family had to say and would deny if the victim's family was very strongly against a person. In fact, the Republicans could not find a single case mm. that Giles did where they were like, this guy should not have gotten this. 
it was always like there were too many. But 71 out of 9,000 people in prison is less than 1% people in prison. It's not that many. You know, if you're looking at mass incarceration, it's not that many. Um, so it's re it, But what this does is political science professors will be writing about this for years. It sends a shot across the bow, not only to Giles, who's still on the parole board, but just not the chair, but all of the Connecticut parole board members don't let people out. All parole board members nationwide. Mm. If you're in this field, if this is your career, if, you're, if your family's life depends on not having a governor scapegoat you because of some misinformation put out by Republicans with no checks and balances, are you going to take the risk of all, what's already a courageous decision of letting someone out of prison? When the easy decision and the default decision and the decision that has driven our politics and our system for decades has been leave them in prison? No, it's a shot it's a shot across the bow and it's a chilling effect. And it's a harm that Governor Lamont has inflicted on essentially everyone who's in prison across the United States. Now that that is a, a, a very interesting perspective. I um for those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, uh, WNHHFM 103.5. Um, I'm your host, Justin Farmer. Our guest, Alex Staub, civil rights attorney. Um, <laughs> I, I I don't know this for sure, right? But I, I, I'm assuming, based off of inference, um, I'm guessing the majority of these inmates are probably black or brown. That's correct majority is is black and so i i'm guessing most of them were younger so it's not the worst criminals who get these huge sentences and who are getting the relief it's the people who had the worst lawyers <laughs> in their initial cases where this information that a judge should have was not there let alone the things that they've done since right i had a client who was 15 years old at the time of the crime but who also had an auditory learning disability that was never communicated to the judge who gave a 50-year prison sentence to a 16-year-old. So, you know, my client was not the worst person in the state of Connecticut in 1996. He just had the worst lawyers at that time who didn't care about him, didn't care what was going to happen to him, and he spent 26 years of the rest of his life paying the price for that until finally we were able to get him some relief. Although Giles's parole board denied him, actually. <laughs> so it's not as though Giles, again, is some cupcake giving it out because I thought my client really deserved relief and his commutation was denied. Um, the criminal justice system has flaws. People slip through the cracks. Good people, people who didn't commit the crime, people who committed the crime at an extremely young age, people who it was a, a moment aberration, of an otherwise non-violent life. Things occasionally happen that are difficult to explain as well. Sometimes victims forgive. There are many circumstances that why you would have clemency. You know, <laughs> you should at least have a system, mm. you know, and it was never a floodgates situation. Even again, the numbers they throw around like 70 people, not all 70 were released. You know, many of them have 10, 15 more years to serve in prison, even after getting this relief. So it's just, you know, it's just easy to scapegoat 
people who've com- who've done something wrong because presumably there's someone else out there who doesn't want them out of prison although that's not always true it's they're an easy target for politics and no one wants to stand up for them <laughs> you know <laughs> it's not a vote getter you know it's easier to say well i i do want reforms to the criminal justice system but i want to help the people who commit nonviolent crimes or things that really aren't crimes you know what i mean but that's not going to solve the problem of being the prison capital of the world mm. because that's already the case we've had reforms for those types of things to be to 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 get ourselves to a prison level like other countries in the rest of the world we have to look at when a person is reformed and they're ready to reintegrate into society and prison is no longer necessary even though they've done something in their past mm that's inexcusable you know i don't ever go and excuse crime that my client committed as i said i've represented the victims of crimes you know but also i've represented the victims of killings by police where no one goes to prison Mm. for a day speak on it where no one is even arrested By all accounts, the trigger was pulled more recklessly, with more reckless abandon, more times, with less of a threat. Mm. But the police officer gets no prison time. So, you know, there's sometimes there's two sides to the story as well. One of my clients who received a commutation is Tracy Shoemaker. In her case, she killed her husband and she got convicted of murder, but her lawyer never brought up all of the documented incidents of domestic violence where her husband was threatening her with guns, threatening her kids with guns. The police were coming and doing nothing. Mm. But she got 25 years in prison, ended up being the valedictorian uh, commencement speaker at the Wesleyan prison college ceremony. But really didn't belong in prison at that time. <laughs> you know? So, commutation process, safety valve, comes in and says, We're, you're going to still have this conviction that's going to follow you. you know, you're going to have a criminal record. You're going to be punished out here in society. You're going to be judged for what you did. But incarceration is no longer necessary. So let's, you know, look at reintegration. I... I've, you know, I've had the opportunity to have Barbara Fair on to talk about the role of the Osbudsman, and I had Steve Kennedy of the People's Parity Project talk about diversifying the bench. What, after reinstating commutation, what what is the what is the issue that you see that Connecticut is missing? Well, the the two issues that Barbara Barbara's issue of the solitary confinement is a huge issue mm. because the prison system again is it actually corrections mm. or is it the Department of Torture, Humiliation, Degradation, and endangering everyone because we release people embittered and angry and in no way treated and unaddressed their trauma. If you if we were to listen to Barbara Fair for one minute, hey. 
we would have so much better system for everyone involved, for the staff, for the prisoners, for the courts, for the lawyers, for everyone involved. And all it would, it's a simple technological fix. You don't need to strip search people, degrade them sexually, assault them in many cases, when mm. you can put them through a body scanner that we have at airports mm. to find the drugs. Buy some scanners and put them in the prison. It's going to save money. Wow. Just listen to Barbara Fair. If we would just take away our prejudice against Barbara Fair for a second that everyone has and all the prejudice that Governor Lamont has and just would listen to Barbara Fair, sit down with her and listen to her and the suggestions she had, we would be in a much better place. And I don't always agree with Barbara Fair. She and I debate all the time. We have disagreements. Mm. But, but, but the problem is, is that the people in power don't listen. You know? And then diversifying the bench is another great example of that. You, know, you have these the people who are being picked for judges who are the politically connected, sometimes members of the, of the family. Mm. Not, even, not even people who are professionally qualified let alone from a diverse range of professional experiences, which you should have so that people can understand the stories of the people who come before them. You don't think that tax law prepares you for criminal law? <laughs> well, the only criminal <laughs> lawyers, there's criminal lawyers on the bench, but they're all prosecutors. There's a 4-3 majority. If, if Governor Lamont's nominee for Supreme Court gets confirmed, there will be a 4-3 majority of prosecutors on the Connecticut Supreme Court. Four prosecutors, three everything else, law. Not four prosecutors, three defenders. Four prosecutors, three everything else. So professional diversity is extremely important. Everything that you know, everything that you do, Justin, as a city councilman is extremely important. And your voice on these issues. Um, the disability justice issues that you speak on, frankly, affect and are going to affect a larger number of Connecticut residents over the next two to three decades than any other issue. Mm. Everybody's body is impaired in some way at some point in their life. Thanks. And your mind is a part of your body and will be impaired at some point in your life. And those issues of justice, extremely important. And education. You know, if we could spend less money incarcerating people and policing them, we could spend more money on ensuring that our children have the proper education that they deserve, that they have a right to, a human right to, in Connecticut, that is denied to the, to the majority, that is denied to the incoming generation. You know, only the privileged minority in Connecticut, the people who had the background like I had growing up, get a proper, adequate education. Everyone else has underfunded, understaffed, under -technologi technologically capable, inadequate education. It's not serving their needs. It's like, it's like the state is happy to simply provide daycare for the working class and education for the middle class, upper class people. So, and then the response is to incarcerate people. No, that that you you touched on so much, but I, I think you, you know, uh, 
not that I wasn't convinced before, but I'm reconvinced. <laughs> yeah, I'm preaching to the choir. I know you and me go go back on this stuff. Well, you know, we're not gonna fi- we're gonna have a lot of common ground. You know, it's not gonna be a debate here. Not just the school. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, ACLU working on a bill to end deceptive practices for minors. Um, Great bill. They should have passed it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, do you, there's an argument, right, that this should only be for youth, right? Um, and, and, and Nonsense. Not, and not for adults. Um, have you seen issues where clients have shared, they felt that practices weren't right in terms of their interrogation or in terms of... Yeah, yeah, and, and actually including people who were kids at the time. <laughs> you know, Melvin Delgado is in prison. He's been in prison since he was 16 years old. Um, they interrogated him when he was 16 years old without his parents while he was drunk and under the influence of drugs. And they lied to him and they got him to give a false confession in a case. And he's been in jail ever since it's been t- over 26 years. Um, and, it's happened in many, many other cases. And I mean, I guess I would say like, if it's not fair to use against children, I don't see how it's fair to use against adults. I mean, the the person who's been arrested, who's in custody of the police is a very vulnerable person. (laughs) They don't have a lawyer. They have no way to know. They don't know the system. They may never have been there before. It's a really arbitrary distinction, but I would still support, I mean, pass the bill and then, you know, frankly if they pass the bill for children it's going to help us lawyers with these practices in any case look they've passed a bill about it for children that helps me i take that i'll take it pass it pass it yesterday (laughs) there should be no argument that this should be done to children Mm. so pass it immediately what does it mean to be a civil rights attorney it's a good question i i um I mean, I do cases that are called civil rights cases. So in the law, that's cases that are brought either against the government because of a violation of constitutional rights or against anyone who violates someone's civil rights, which like, you know, employment, civil rights, um, civil rights um, in public accommodations, you know, like racial discrimination, gender discrimination. Um, So I do those cases. Anything with an ism, you're against it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I fight a lot of these isms. You know, we have an interesting case now that's about um, whether discriminating against someone on the basis of their weight mm. or their perceived weight is disability discrimination or perceived disability discrimination mm. under state law. And that's a very close question that's being looked at in the courts. Um, but yeah, we civil rights law, I think, is about people's rights and trying to defend them. I always represent people. I don't represent companies or insurance or government. I represent the people. And we try to get people's um, rights vindicated. Now, the thing I was talking about before with the commutations, does that fall under civil rights? I leave that for others to say. I mean, it's more sort of criminal defense, you know, or, you know, as a lawyer, you have like different buckets you put things in, right? But mainly I'm just a lawyer, you know, Mm. and I can, if it's in Connecticut, hopefully I can help. What, 
I know they're from hearing you, right? There's a lot of things that can be worked on, need to be worked on. Um, uh, how are you feeling about the state of, you know, public interest law in general? Well, it's steady work because these issues are not going to go away tomorrow. They're going to continue and we're going to have work to do regardless of how successful we are, you know, but it's like, as long, you know, there's lots of different things that you can put your mind to. And I think the law, you know, it's hard to say sometimes, you know, I'm conflicted about it. Like, one of the things I have a conflict about in my own mind is, am I really changing anything here? Or am I legitimizing something that's really just override, overwhelmingly not changing? You know, like commutation process is a great example. But in the end, like people benefited from it. You know, some like Daryl Valentine, you know, would be sitting in prison. So you have to decide for yourself what, if you if you're interested in law and you're interested in social change and civil rights and public interest and things like that you have to decide for yourself where your source of satisfaction is going to come from it's not, it can't come from like solving the problem <laughs> you know what i mean cuz it's not going to happen but you can find other ways to be satisfied with the contribution that you make and the work work is not the only thing in life either Thanks. you know so you know i i work and i work probably more than i should you know, because I get obsessed with it. But I'm trying to also find ways to balance that with the rest of my life because you can't solve all the problems. You have to, you have, and you have to keep yourself alive. You have to keep your family alive. <laughs> no, great words of wisdom. Um, uh, la last thought before uh, uh, coming to my favorite question that I always love to ask at the end uh, of interviews. But, uh, General thoughts, last thoughts on, you know, the role of the ombudsman. Yeah, well, we absolutely need the ombudsman for the DOC because wherever there is not transparency, you will see corruption. And whenever you have people holding other people in custody with power over them, that power is going to corrupt. And so when you have a combination of a Department of Correction, one of the largest departments of state government, billions of dollars a year, with thousands of people in its custody, no transparency, no independent oversight, <laughs> that is a recipe for a disaster. And the disaster is happening every day in Connecticut where people's rights are being violated. Only every once in a while do we see the catastrophe right in front of our eyes like we did with Randy Cox. Mm. But these types of things are happening in many cases being swept under the rug. No one is held accountable. No one hears about it. The records never come forth. You, if anybody listening to this can, can Google the late Joshua Kovner's investigative work for the current about 25 prison death cases, medical malpractice that were suppressed by the state for years until the report was finally released through FOIA. So, do we need an ombudsman? <laughs> Yesterday, <laughs> 10 years ago, we needed an ombudsman. We need probably going to need more than one ombudsman. You know, I, we make sure this is someone who actually does their job. It's going to be a very hard job. 
very, very difficult. And the first person who does it is going to be a target mm. for it to be from attacks on all sides. So they're going to have a very hard job. Let me look at Carlton Giles. You know, if this person does their job, they have a very <laughs> serious threat of being removed. Not because they didn't do their job, because they did do their job. Not that. That that's a good point. I um. My favorite question to always ask people, right, um, is what is a song that connects them to the work, or what's a song that's personally close to them that people can, you know share into and 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 connect and, and remember the the truths that you are sharing today well since this is a com- it's commutation season we're <laughs> hoping that the uh mercy and and grace is restored to connecticut i would have to go with amazing grace mm-hmm. which was i believe composed by a slave trader who realized the sins of his actions and saw the light and was repentant for his sins. And, you know, we should, you know, America has some sins to repent in its system so that maybe we can do so with some grace towards those we imprison. Mm. Well, <clears throat> Alex, thank you, thank you, thank you for for being on the show with us, for connecting with us. Um, it is. It was a great honor to have you to to, to talk about the issues. Um, until next time, um, let us continue to plant the seeds of change so we can grow together. Thank you. Yeah. Yo, yo, we're trying to plane leaving. All right. See you at the airport. Traveling man